As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I know many of you are going to get tired of me introducing the podcast about how excited I am about the guests that I have, but I'm not even capping. Like I'm not capping when I say my guest today needs no introductions. I'm a massive fan of her work and her presence on social media. It continues to be a source of inspiration for me. We have none other than Dr. Sharice Burdenstelli, Dr. CBS, Black Left AF on social media. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. And you no need to like fanboy or anything if that's how you self-identify. Just I'm we just out. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not you, not you cussing me in the first minute. <laughs> no, nah, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. So I watch your lectures and I see that you seem to trace the genealogy of the term racial capitalism within the writings of Cedric Robinson, the author of Black Marxism, and in South Africa when, uh, with the analysis of the apartheid. So my question is to you, in the most simplest terms, what do we mean by racial capitalism? Sure. So I have my own definition of racial capitalism, and I've defined it in at least two ways in two different writings. And so I'm going to read the definitions and then kind of like break it down. So Mm -hmm. in a small acts article that was called On Bangers and Empire, it was sort of like a review essay of Peter James Hudson's Bangers and Empire. I defined racial capitalism as a war-driven, racially hierarchical global system constituting white supremacist accumulation, dependent extraction, imperial expropriation, labor, super exploitation, and neo-colonial absorption of financial risk. And then in my monthly review article called Mm -hmm. Modern U.S. Racial Capitalism, Some Theoretical Insights, I defined it as a racially hierarchical political economy constituting war and militarism, imperialist accumulation, expropriation by domination and labor super exploitation. And so there, those two definitions are a little bit different, but there are some continuities between them. But in the very basic sense, I think that myself and others who use racial capitalism or racist Mm -hmm. capitalism or race and capitalism or racialized capitalism, and then my neologism in my, my new book is capitalist racism. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about the ways in which race or the ordering of humans, humanity, peoples, and Mm -hmm. even nations by a scriptive category that is biological, essentially in origin, but is Mm -hmm. socioeconomic in its material reality. Mm. So that's one definition of, let us say, race, right? Capitalism Mm -hmm. is a system of exploitation of Man by man, man being the abstract term for human, you know, man one, according to Sylvia Winter, where one group, the ruling class, has a lot. They own the means of production, so to speak, a very tiny class. And then the rest of the people, the world or a particular nation have 
almost nothing and have to sell their labor for wages. Mm-hmm. And so that's a basic definition of capitalism. And so when we bring together racial capitalism or ra- you know, race and capitalism to talk about them as mutually constitutive, we're saying that you really can't understand one without the other. And the debate about which came first is less important than the way that they continue to inform and reify mm. each other. And so we're really challenging the race versus class debate, debate to think about how these two phenomena need to be understood together. And so for my own understanding, I look at processes of, I look at processes of sort of domination that lead to the sort of accumulation of wealth that's not based on any sort of morality or acumen. It's based on relations of domination. And that rela- those relations of domination tend to fall along not only racial lines, but are also rooted in war and violence. And so mm. if you look at, you know, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore or Michael Dawson or Nancy Frazier, myself, Destin Jenkins, I think that we're all trying to get at those dynamics in different ways alongside, you know, scholars like Neville Alexander, Cedric Robinson, Peter James Hudson, and Robin Kelly and others. Mm-hmm. This is all, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> you, you see, you know you got it like that when you can quote yourself in a, among so many people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, because I would say that rarely do I ever see a comprehensive definition of racial capitalism. And I will say I'm relatively new to the conceptual framework, but I will say okay. that to my knowledge, I'm one of the only people who's actually defined racial capitalism in any sort of comprehensive way and, and at least attempted to operationalize it. Mm. A lot of time people just use the term. And so it becomes one of those those kind of slippery terms like globalization or neoliberalism or diaspora or whatever. So, so yes, I do count myself among, <laughs> among the racial capital. And, and we're grateful for it. We're grateful for it. Okay. So there's been a lot of talk on social media, a lot of talk on, and this, this debate is occurring. We find videos of the likes of Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture addressing this. How would you respond to the claim that Marx is a, and I do recognize a lot of these calls to, all too often come from the kind of logics of black self-determination or, you know, do for self and pull one up by the bootstrap kind of logic that, you know, we don't need to look at theories that, and frameworks that don't come from ourselves, ourselves being the black community. And that being understood that Marxism is, Marx is white from Germany or from Europe, you know, dies in the UK and he is a white man and we don't need to be taking knowledge from this person. We have our own framework. What would you just respond to that? Well, I mean, I will respond that that shit is goofy. Like, okay, it's interesting when people make this argument, but there are a lot of, let us say, Black nationalists, for example. And one might argue that nationalism, at least in its sort of codification through the Treaty of Westphalia, is European, right? That somewhat a lot, you know, existentialism, phenomenology. And so (laughs) just because a white person, I mean, I think that it's not necessarily about the origins. But how my question, I guess, is why is it that so many people of African descent found this framework, that is to say Marxism, Leninism, or Maoism, or whatever, to be not only interesting, but like useful and practical for things like state formation, for things like revolutionary Mm -hmm. struggle, for things like, you know, describing and understanding our historical material conditions. So Mm -hmm. even if it's quote unquote, 
you know, even if Marx is white and it's quote unquote Eurocentric, Black people have always articulated to our own needs and our own historical situation and our own material situation. And so, you know, Fanon talked about how Marxist Leninism needs, Marxism in particular needs to be stretched to the colonial situation. Okay. And I would say, and so the Black people that I study who are Marxist Leninists, nobody is dogmatically following, you know, Mark 19th century, 19th century Marxism, Leninism. They're trying to understand mm. how to get free in their times, whether that is the 1920s, the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, mm-hmm. and so on. And so I think that's a little bit of a red herring argument. I, I understand it to a certain degree whereby we don't want to make the assumption that everything we know about the world needs to be traced back to a white or it's not worth knowing. So I don't agree mm-hmm. with that. But it's even people like Sheikh Antajiok, people like mm-hmm. Adi Sasser, yep. who were who were in, yep. you know, who left Marxism or left a communist party behind at some point, even they were still inspired by or engaged with or found Marxism Leninism useful. And so I just it's just a red herring to me. And I think it's a, it, it too often allows people to evade a structural analysis or to evade mm-hmm. a critique of capitalism. And so it's easy to be like, well, Marx was wise, Marx was racist or Marxism is, is Eurocentric. And so I can, you know, fall back into my abstract idealism and my, you know, whatever other goofy shit people, people want to, you know, believe in so they don't have to critique capitalism. But I just, it's, it's a red herring argument in my perspective. And it never seems to engage with, all of the Black people, right? Walter Rodney, yes. Maurice Bishop, Thomas mm-hmm. Sankara, Tyra Edwards, Maude White Katz, Claudia Jones, Louise Thompson Patterson, William Patterson, Paul Robeson, Islanda Robeson, Thelma Dale, oh. and I could go on and on and on, you know, Queen Mother Moore, who all of these people who use historical materialism or scientific socialism as a tool, often among others, to figure out Black liberation in a world not rooted in white supremacy and capitalist domination. And so are we just going to be like all those people are Eurocentric? You know, Mm. no. And then another another sort of tool, like another critique I heard from another goofy the other day was, you know, those people didn't know any better. (laughs) But but why do you say why do you say dragon people? That's what I want to (laughs) know. Because people's just people stay get you know getting on my nerves with just with just <laughs> ridiculous things. It's like, well, the boys didn't know any better. Where CLR didn't know any better. They, you know, mm. time has moved on since then. They didn't re- they didn't know what we know now. Okay, mm. you know. So then, do we just disregard all the people that are Marxist Leninists today? And the, this is <laughs> somebody who called themselves whatever, who's aligned with feminism, right? Okay, mm-hmm. what about Angela Davis? Okay, what about yep. Com- the Kambahi River Collective? Okay, what about Fran Beale? She's still a lot. Like, there's all of these people. And so to think that Marxism is passe is something that our, you know, our ancestors or our teachers from our historical teachers believed in because they didn't know any better is just really goofy. And, and one has some motherfucking nerve. And so it's like, you're going to say that, you're going to say Marxism is Eurocentric, but not feminism, mm. right? And then it's like, but there's black feminism, right? There's black Marxism, right? When we exactly. append black to anything, it's, it means that we are using it to our own end, right? And of course, there yep. are contradictions inherent in that, but it's not just Marxism, that's anything. Motherfuckers still talking about freedom and democracy, <laughs> like that you still believe in that <laughs> in a you you know in a u.s specified form but it's but mark we can't believe in marxism because marx was white it's like it's real silly and i think we can you know we can we can do better dismiss that I, I, yeah 100 <laughs> percent. 
I think that serves as an amazing and a, a, a poignant segue into, I'm going to probably title this episode, The Myth of Black Capitalism. Because in trying to provide a political education on this platform and on social media, I get the pushback a lot from particularly black people, because that's who I'm mainly talking to, in that, you know, but, but okay, fair enough, capitalism delivers wealth for black people. Capitalism, you know, allows social upward mobility for many black people. We have the, the you know, we celebrate, well, I don't celebrate, I say we using the royal we, you know, black billionaires, the Diddy's, the Kanye's, these people are, you know, doing things for the community. So Dr. CBS, how would you respond and why do you think, two questions, why do you think our people have bought into this kind of the myth of black capitalism as a form of liberation and social upward mobility? And also, does the black capitalism even exist in the way we think it does? Well, I think that people believe in it because it's very hard not to. It's, it's kind of like, you know, liberalism. This is this is what we're inculcated in. And if you're constantly mm-hmm. surrounded by like this is ingrained in us from the time that we're young, that capitalism is good, that, it you know, socialism is bad, that, mm-hmm. you know, if we don't have competition, if we don't have free, quote unquote, free markets, then people will be lazy. Nothing will get done. You know, they, they'll show the pictures of an overcast Soviet Union where people are lined up for their fucking turnips in, in their, you mm-hmm. know, gray trash bags. That's, <laughs> that's ostensibly what socialism is, but capitalism is mm-hmm. supposed to be vibrant. And it, you know, it's mm-hmm. all you need is luck and pluck. You just got to work hard. You got to save your money. You have to be, you know, you have to commodify whatever you can, you, you know, and then, and, and if you just do that, you'll make it. But we know that that's not the, the case because some of the hardest mm-hmm. working people are some of the poorest people. They can't afford anything, right? Mm-hmm. They can't afford to pay attention, as we will say. And so mm-hmm. we know that it's not hard work, but I think that what happens is that, especially over time, there's been just enough chips in the cookie, so to speak, of people who have made it, people who have been able to be relatively successful entrepreneurs. And that's the other thing, too. We need to disentangle entrepreneurship and capitalists. There mm. really are, as I try to tell people, Black people own no means of production, at least in the context of the United States. Like, no, you know, no minds. Yep. We have no monopoly on force or violence. And going back to the definition of what racial capitalism is, this is why we need to, to not think of capitalism as just a system of free enterprise. If we think about it in the way that I've defined it, it's like, you know, as a, as a take African-American, I can talk about African-Americans because there are African people who do have this, but it's like African-Americans have no monopoly on violence. We own no commanding heights. We own no means of production. You know, we, you know, so what the black quote unquote capitalists or the black bourgeois or petty bourgeois class is in the context of the United States is really like a managerial class or really like a kind of comprador class. It's dependent. And so people Mm. who will look, for example, at Jay-Z, it's like, well, Jay-Z, there's title, right? Jay-Z doesn't really own the actual means of production of title, which is like airways. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't. So you got a Jay-Z, for example, and then you got a fucking Ted Turner, right? Who Mm. owns many, many stations. If you look at Oprah, own is a subsidiary of Discovery. She doesn't own mm. that channel. She is leasing that channel, basically. And so it's it's just, it's a petty capitalist or it's a, like a, just a, it's an orientation or a disposition, but like we really are not the true capitalists because we don't have the history and the means of extracting untold amounts of wealth and labor that actual capitalists have. 
It gets mm-hmm. complicated when we look at like the continent, for example, because, you know, heads of state there do yep. have um, have armies, right? They do have a yeah. particular monopoly on violence. But that's why we need to talk about neocolonialism, because oftentimes they don't own the mines. They yeah. don't own the, the cash crops. They don't own any of that stuff. It's U.S. corporations. It's, you know, France, England, Portugal, and Spain. It's, it's former colonial powers that actually dictate and determine the policy. And also, the, the, therefore, you know, much of the political structure, because they are the ones who have historically been able to wield the, the means of force and, uh, and technology to extract, right? To extract, mm-hmm. to exploit, to dispossess, et cetera. And so, you know, to make a short story long, as I always do, <laughs> I think that when we un- when we think about racial capitalism, that helps to upend this idea of Black capitalism. Yes, there's Black entrepreneurship, and yes, there's Black entrepreneurs who are very successful and who have a lot of money. But mm-hmm. to call them capitalists as such, or, or to hold them up as a model, is just goofy, Right. And even if there were successful black capitalists, that means that the overwhelming majority of people are not going to have anything at, you know, that means even black people, that means the overwhelming majority of people are going to be in a precarious situation where they have to 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 even be able to live, to survive. Mm -hmm. They have to work or commodify every aspect of their being. And like, what kind of existence is that, even if they're if black people have access to it, that's a very nah, that, that colonized liberation dream. So not nah, for real, for real. Okay. So then you kind of mentioned the point which kind of touches on the next theme, which is organizing. Before I get to like how we organize and your advice for next generation, my question would be, and I've seen um, you so poignantly, <laughs> you so uh, effectively, sorry, come for black liberals. So what's the beef with black liberals? Black liberals are just the ideological side of like the black capitalist coin. So black liberalism. So again, I, I speak often in the context of the United States because, you know, that's where I live and that's what I, I mean. The United States is world culture. Let's be honest, it, Western world culture. So that's yes, what we, we yes. watch. I often say to people on social media and Twitter, I'm like, we all know everything that goes on politics in the United States. But if I was to ask you who the leader of the opposition is in the UK, I know a lot of people in the US would not know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we wouldn't, you know, and I don't need, I just know it's, it's some white. <laughs> it was, it was morning Prince Philip right now. Shit, I don't know. Like, you know, and it's like, and I would like to think I'm, you know, I'm informed, but I do know the Labour Party and the Tory Party and shit, but you're absolutely correct. But even still, I don't like to extrapolate U.S. Yeah. Blackness to mm-hmm. other localities because that's mm-hmm. that's not how this thing works. But in the context of the United States, I think that liberalism still abets capitalist exploitation. It abets imperialism and abets warmongering, but all that it does is state that Black people need to have an equal share or equal chance in that exploitation, Mm. right? And so I call it the but-for logic, that the United States would be the greatest country on earth, or liberalism would be the best thing in the world, but for racism, but for Mm. white supremacy. Number one, and again, going back to racial capitalism, there is no capitalism without racism or white supremacy. It doesn't work in that way. And secondly, it's also bullshit because these are ideals, but the United States has never lived up to them. The United States has never, you know, that's a way that the U.S. narrates itself to itself, but that's actually not what it is, right? And, I, and, and Black people have never been accorded the accoutrements of liberalism, right? Because what goes alongside mm-hmm. liberalism is free, like freedom and liberty yep. and rights and citizenship. And so it's just, it's, you know... 
So, so what you're essentially saying, Dr. CBS, you're saying you won't be dancing for away white supremacy. That's what you're saying. Hell no, and especially yeah. not no dusty ass Ugg. So <laughs> don't, don't kill me. <laughs> so no, you know, and I just and it's 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 embarrassing. It's also no, humiliating. Hella embarrassing. Hella embarrassing. Like I, you know, I, I won't say the organization's name. Sorry to cut you off. Actually, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was gonna say. I mean, I, I don't want to say the organization organization's name, which I won't. But when I see like let's twerk for white supremacy or let's twerk for Martin Luther King, I'm thinking. Come on, man, please. Let's do better than this, guys, man, please. Now, I will say, okay, I do believe that there should be, I do believe in joy because the other side to that, oh, like course. you young folks, I feel like, so you, like I'm a professor, oh, right? I, you're not young. <laughs> you're not young. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a professor. And so when I teach, what I tell some of my students is that y'all think that being miserable or suffering is like, your your bona fides for being an organizer or activist or being like woke. You can be happy. You can have joy. We can have fun, even in revolutionary struggle and praxis. The problem is when that goofy shit stands in for organizing, when it stands in mm, for okay. actually redistributed, uh, actual redistribution, when it stands in for struggling. And I think that that's when it becomes problematic. But I think that, you know, if we're twerking as we're, you know, Defending our communities from, you know, pig brutality. That's one thing. But See, this twerking right doesn't now replace It's very gendered right now. Very gendered right now. I don't twerk, so I'm sorry. I can't, but but, I but some, of the best twer- <laughs> some of the best twerkers are men or That's men true. identified. True. So, true. you know, so let's not, you know, let's not do that. Like, it's, <laughs> no, it, it applies playing. to everybody, you know, two-step, whatever you want to say. And, you know, this particular person was doing the electric slide, whatever. You know, that's, you know, that's for everybody, I guess. But, <laughs> not for real. You know, and so I think that, but the other thing about, you know, liberalism is that it is rooted in this idea of recognition and representation as opposed to redistribution and transformation mm. or revolution. And like, we can't, that is not going to get, representation is not going to get us anywhere. And like, you know, I just have never been one to be like, you know, since there's been a black president, now black people can see that they actually can be president. Or since there's been a black, you know, a black now a black woman, a black and South Asian woman vice president, now black black women can see that they can do anything. It's like, first of all, I never want anybody that I love, any young people I love to want to strive to be the head of empire, first of all. Mm, yep. And second of all, you know, if we look diasporically, we've been having, we've been running states, we've been doing all those yep. things. And so you know, it just it just becomes very, very problematic. And then the other side to liberalism is the anti-communism, is the sort of denigration of of revolutionary and radical praxis, because these things are fundamentally incompatible. And as we know, in the context of the United yep. States, liberalism is so amenable to fascism. And so there's just many reasons why why liberalism is problematic, especially articulated by black folks. It's aspirational. And I just think that th- those are the wrong aspirations to have. I, totally in agreement. Totally in agreement. Thank you so much. And please, before anyone comes for me, that gendered comment was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. I was not being serious. Um, <laughs> come for me, please. <laughs> okay. So on the point of organizing. I know you often say, I've seen your tweets about, you know, movements and not leaders in the same way. I do believe myself, we probably come, we probably moved away from the single leader of a movement right now. I think it's important to build, you know, coalitions and build movements and transnational movements. So on a point of organizing, what advice would you give to those coming up? And, and, And to myself, actually, how can we continue this revolutionary struggle? 
Yeah, I would definitely say first and foremost, you know, join an organization. So, you know, organizations that I admire, like AAPRP, um, Hood of mm-hmm. Communists, which is more of a, a sort of a blog, but it, that with mm-hmm. some editors, you know, Black Alliance for Peace, which I joined, like they would always mm-hmm. call for us, you know, for Black people, for Africans to join an organization. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I am i don't have an organizing or activist background. I'm in an organization now, but for a very okay. long time, I was not. You know, and so I always preface all of these conversations by saying I don't have that background. I'm an academic and I am, but I, but I just see the importance of being in an organization, just even for the short time that I've been in Black Alliance for Peace. I just, yes. first of all, it's very important to be surrounded by people who have similar types of ideas so you don't feel like you're crazy. I think, and I think that's really mm-hmm. important because when you're always the lone fucking radical shouting in the wind, uh, sometimes you could be like, okay, well, you know, maybe my politics are an anachronism. Right. Maybe they just aren't for this time. But then you're surrounded by other people who think like you and who have your back. And the other thing about being in an organization is that you can then you can let go of some shit. You don't feel like you have to do everything or you have to say everything because there's people around you who, you know, have your back and who, you know, are committed to the same things that you are. I think that it it pushes you to constantly grow and to constantly pay attention to what is happening in the world, because, you know, I've said elsewhere, showing up as an academic or an expert is one thing. Showing up as a comrade is another thing. And I know that I constantly have to engage in self-criticism, you know, Mm. and I spoke, you know, on my show about on my show recently, like I don't have revolutionary patience. I just don't like I'm (laughs) I'm very impatient and, you know, I don't have a particular understanding or patience with our people that I need to have. And so that's something that I need to work on, especially when I'm in No, but you know, you're speaking to me though. You're speaking to me because I said this the other day, I, I'm currently existing somewhere between abolition and some niggas need to get shot. Yeah. So I'm, just like, <laughs> so I'm, so, I'm in between those places right now. I want to have, obviously, so I call myself an inspiring abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> a nigga getting shot is perhaps one type of abolition, right? It's literally... <laughs> Don't get me arrested. <laughs> You know, anyway, so so I think, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, organizing mm-hmm. really, especially for, for petty bourgeois. So, you know, I'm, I'm petty bourgeois for all intents and purposes, I, I guess, or, you know, whatever, as an academic. But it, it sort of, it allows you, number one, to apply your theories and number two, to constantly be working in collaboration and in community. And it also requires political education. So that's the, ne- the, the next thing I'll say is alongside joining an organization, we have to have political education because that yes. is when... You're, that is how you work through the contradictions. That is how you know what a sort of a particular, a correct line might be on a on a particular issue. You know, mm. that's how you root out your own internalized capitalism, your own internalized liberalism is through political education and, and not just you reading books alone, highlighting every word on the page, but in but collectively, right, in community, struggling through ideas. We have many ideological struggles within that because we are a multi-tendency mass-based organization. But even seeing and those struggles, especially initially, made me very uncomfortable because I was like, oh shit, you know, they're beefing, like what's gonna happen? But it's not like that. They're principal struggles. And you know, sometimes we come to a consensus, sometimes we don't. But mm-hmm. knowing where our people are, though those struggles they need, they're going to keep on happening for a very long time because so many people there's so much confusion. 
right? And so yes. it's really, really important. So being in an organization and having political education, ongoing political education in, in collectives and in community is what helps us move in a way that is toward liberation and not towards either reformism or mm. towards, you know, maintaining the status quo. Thank you. Thank you for that. For the inspiring words. You heard it from Dr. CBS. You have to be joining an organization. Please, I haven't said this publicly yet, as of yet, but by the time this comes out, people would have heard it. I will be launching the Malcolm Effect Collective as a organization, as a transnational movement, hopefully. And um, we will be seeking advice from, as Dr. As Dr. CBS pulled rank on us, we were seeking advice from our elders in the matter. <laughs> You um, have, yeah, the, they have to be multi-generational conversations, you know, and the elders, the elders be, you know, they be a little bit off on some things, yeah. sometimes even the, you know, the gender and sexuality stuff, but they have yeah. a wealth of experience. And so this is why being multi-generational is really, really important. So this whole, the, you know, the youth culture, you know, the youth being, you know, the future and all that, yes, it's true, but it has to be intergenerational. And so neither side, the young folks or the old folks can act like we don't need one another. So, of course, so, uh, yes, nah, for, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Continuing on organizing the last question, something that, again, I feel like people forget some of the premise of my podcast, this podcast, I call it like, it's a letter to myself. So I'm getting education right now. And I hope by me learning things, other people who are listening are learning things as well. So I'm trying to work through this kind of idea of, you know, we hear, we see Judas and the Black Messiah. We know what Chairman Fred did in trying to build, you know, the Rainbow Coalition. And we, you know, which on all amongst class lines, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is then, how do we then deal with the issue of race in a multiracial coalition? Because I know some people say, no, white people, you organize amongst yourselves. No, we have to do it together. We can organize together. I generally don't know because, yeah, so what advice would you give? You know, I really don't have an answer to that because I think that both models can be worked, but this is why we need to study. Mm-hmm. This is why we need to understand history and, and have and look at different models. And so I think it also depends on what your objectives are. Like, what are your objectives? What are your campaigns and what tactics as a collective do you find to be generative and fruitful? So you have like something like the CPUSA, for example, which historically was, you know, multiracial, that especially in the 1930s and, you know, early 1940s did a lot of work, a lot of important work. It was the only interracial party in the United States at that time, party in particular. It had a lot of, you know, problems and, you know, was heavily infiltrated, you know, especially in toward the late 1950s, early 1960s, et cetera. But then you have something like the Black Panther Party that is, you know, an all Black organization for the most part, but that worked in sort of coalitions with other groups, right? Other ethnic groups and even, you know, even, you know, progressive white folks. And so I'm not going to say that I'm in a Black organization and our organization, non-Africans can join our Solidarity Network, but our organization is a Black organization. That is how I prefer to, that is my my preferred, you know, venue for organizing and activism, because I think that there's, even as Black people, there's so much diversity, there's so much class differentiation, yes. there's so much ideological struggle that needs to happen that my hands are full there. And so when, you know, non-Black folks ask me, you know, what can white people or what can non-Black people do to be better allies? It's like, that's a conversation y'all have to have amongst yourselves. And then perhaps once you've done the first level of figuring that out, you can consult with the Black organization or ask Black Mm -hmm. people, this is what we came up with. But it's like, we can't figure out your shit and our shit. I do think that in the final analysis, 
multi, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-racial cooperation is absolutely essential. But the burden of white supremacy is not on us. It's on white people. And so, so you know, I, I, I stated in, I think it was in the event I did with Barbara Smith and Robin Kelly that mm-hmm. black, the Black working oppressed and poor people are in a very, a very difficult spot because it's like, okay, Black people need to unite with, with white workers, but we know the rate, we know white workers are racist, period, especially in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you know, it, and and they have a lot of cross-class collaboration in terms of race. But then the yes. black petty bourgeoisie, they, you know, they are problematic too. They are capitalists, they are imperialists oftentimes as well. And so yes. and so it's very, very difficult. And so I think that in the final analysis, we all we have to struggle in a coordinated way, we being across races and across ethnic background. Yeah. But how we get there. And what that actually looks like is, I think that there's different, you know, there's different ways to skin that cat, so to speak. Um, and I'm not anti-cat, so the cat lobby don't come for me. I'm actually, cat <laughs> <lady stuff>. but, <laughs> you know, like, so, so, you know, it's, I think it's, it depends. I, I'm not, I don't have an answer to that question, but that's just me sort of thinking through it. No, no, no. Thank you so much for that. Okay. This is a bit off topic, but I know you're a W.E.B. Du Bois scholar. And I often see this kind of the dichotomy of W.E.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington. It's just, again, for my own education. Not that I agree with the sort of what some black people say, but what would be your response to people who say, well, if we followed the logic of Booker T. Washington, we would have been in a much better place today? <laughs> I think that if we followed the logic of Booker T. Washington, there would be a lot less political struggle that would have, necessary political struggle that would have happened because, and, yep. and also a lot more of the sort of managerial class type of politics, which, which we still have today. But I think that Econ, I think that Booker T. Washington was right in spirit in terms of the, of, of black people needed to build up an economic base. But I think, but Du Bois also had a plan for this in the 1930s in a cooperative way, right? So he wrote like, you know, a Negro nation within a nation, does a Negro need separate mm-hmm. schools and, you know, social planning among the Negroes past and present where he was talking about a separate sort of black economy because of the realities of white supremacy, but it was, it was cooperative, it was collective okay. and it had to, you know, he called it um, strategic separation and, you know, collective self-determination. And so one might argue that that is in the spirit of somebody that, that is not, you know, you know, that's in the spirit of a Booker T. Washington, except Booker T. Washington was much more sort of, I would say, traditionally capitalist in his outlook. He was very yes. anti-union. He was very anti-immigrant. And wow. so, you know, but I don't, I also don't, Du Bois and Booker T were actually not as dichotomous as people set them up to be, right? Booker T. Washington did believe in liberal arts education. In fact, most of the people that he trained at Tuskegee were not manual laborers. They went on to be teachers. And Du Bois also believed in, you know, industrial education and in, in you know, in skills-based education. And so, so that's just one way in which they were, they actually weren't as incompatible. But what what Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter and um, Ida B. Wells and many others were against was the way that Booker T. Washington would foreclose intellectual space. He would he would foreclose good faith debate. So, like if you disagreed with him, he would make sure he would make sure you couldn't get a job, you couldn't get published because oh, wow. you know he he owned some newspapers. Yes, he would he would make sure that you were not able to make a living if you came for him. And so they were, you know, so, so the boys at all, they were against that aspect of it. Cause it's like, you know, they, you know, I would, I would like to believe they were of the belief, like we're fucked up out here as black people. We need all hands on deck. We need to have yes. many different approaches to this thing. But Booker T Washington will make that sort of 
multi-tendency struggle, you know, if not impossible, then very, very difficult. And so I think that they have much more of a problem with that, with him imposing his way alone, Mm. more so than, you know, liberal arts education versus, you know, industrial education. Yeah. Got you, got you. And th- and finally, this has been a, honestly such an amazing conversation. And finally, if I, you you speak about the link between anti-blackness and anti-communism, what is that link and why does it exist? If there is a link. Yeah, well, so part of part of the reason why I even came to racial capitalism was thinking about the linkage between anti-communism and anti-blackness or anti-radicalism and anti-blackness with anti-communism being one enunciation of anti-radicalism. And it Mm -hmm. seems to me that if you have a racially hierarchical, exploitative political economy, then the two enemies will be those who fundamentally challenge the racial structure, which is also the economic structure, and those who fundamentally challenge the economic structure, which also subtends the racial structure, right? And that is Mm -hmm. Black people who are at the very bottom, right? And yes. it's not just Black people who are exploited along, you know, in terms of race. There's also like, you know, Latinx people, Asian folks. Yes. And then there's also the indigenous folks, right, who are um, dispossessed and expropriated. And so to me, anti-Blackness and anti-radicalism mutually reinforce each other because both are threats to, you know, the, the, the socioeconomic order. And so there's ways in which Blackness is constructed up as on the constitutive outsides of the state as dangerous, as threatening, as always menacing the organization of society. And radicals are seen in much the same way. And then they come together, for example, through, let us say, socialism or communism, because Mm -hmm. at least in theory, socialist and communist organizations are interracial. So then there's also like, it's not only that these people are trying to redistribute wealth or to, you know, ostensibly overthrow the system by force or violence. But then they're also saying that these niggas are equal to us. (laughs) They're also Mm -hmm. contravening um, the racial order by working or by allowing Black people in their organizations on equal footing. At the same time, there is this idea that communism and socialism are foreign or foreign inspired. And so this Mm -hmm. has the same, you know, that these are ideas that are exogenous from the United States and that when, you know, these whites, especially Jews, right? So that there's an anti-Semitism built in. So these Eastern Europeans, these Jews come into the United States with these ideas, they're they're rousing up the Blacks, (laughs) right? And so there's always a particular fear about foreign inspiration or outside agitation as it relates to Black people, because prior to, you know, the Bolshevik revolution, there is this fear of pro-Germanism. There was also a fear of pro-Japanese sentiment among Black people. And so there's always this idea that these foreigners will come in and exploit the racial situation, which is anti-Black, right, extreme anti-Black repression, terrorism, um, and exploitation, and that the Black people will then rise up against the state. Right. And so this is how, you know, this specter of radicalization and then this specter of black subversion come together, because remember, the blacks, you know, we're not quite citizens. We don't quite belong. Right. We don't we don't quite have the accoutrement of citizenship. So, you know, we're not very we don't have reason. We don't have rationality, you know, all of the all of these sorts of things. And that is what makes ostensibly black people particularly susceptible to outside influence mm-hmm. is that you know, the childlike or the savage like or the criminal like nature of black people is what makes them susceptible to this outside wow. influence, this radicalism. And so all of these discourses 
but also the forms of domination to which radicals and Black folks are subjected are the same. And so elsewhere, I've written about deportable subjectivity, where I talked about imposed carcerality and deportation as two sort of structures that were imposed upon Blacks and radicals, and especially Black radicals. So this way of circumscribing their movement and, and their belonging, because again, it is these two groups that fundamentally challenge liberal racial So anyway, this is sort of what one of the thrusts of my work is, is is looking at the ways in which um, the legal architecture and the narrations or the discourse and then the the material practices come together such that anti-radicalism, specifically anti-communism and anti-blackness, mutually reinforce each other. And that's what we call a masterclass. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. CBS. I'm going to post Dr. CBS's socials in the description of this episode. Please, I don't know. I mean, yeah, hit her up. Hit her up if you have any questions. This has been an amazing episode and this has been an education for myself. You're listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, whether that's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on YouTube. Until next time, people, take care.